Hi, and welcome to On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green that explores social entrepreneurship and the stories of visionary leaders advancing equity and justice worldwide. Echoing Green is a premier global investor in emerging leaders with the best and the boldest ideas for transforming the world, providing fellowship, community, seed stage funding, and strategic support at that critical stage where they're just trying to get off the ground. This season of Encores features Echoing Green Fellows in dialogue with each other about the joy, creativity, successes, and challenges of working to transform systems for the better and for the long haul, highlighting stories and advice from the moment these leaders decided to act. Encores explores our collective visions for a more just, equitable, and sustainable world. Today's episode of Encores features a conversation between J Lim and Daquan Oliver. They both received the Echoing Green Fellowship in 2015. J is the founder and CEO of Talking Points, an edtech nonprofit with a mission to drive student success by unlocking the potential of families to fuel their children's learning. They do this through a multilingual tech platform that connects families and teachers through translated communication and personalized content. Daquan is the founder and CEO of We Thrive. We Thrive is creating a culture where all young people feel trusted to contribute ideas, form student-run companies, and achieve economic prosperity. Through We Thrive, Daquan engages teachers and schools to recruit students and foster the development of their entrepreneurial energy. Together, Heejay and Daquan reflect on the state of education amid the COVID-19 pandemic, the importance of cultivating reliable earned revenue streams, and their dreams for moving towards a more personalized education system. So Daquan, please introduce yourself for the audience with your name and the titles that matter most to you. Hey Jay, what's going on? Appreciate you. My name is Daquan Oliver, founder and CEO of We Thrive. And you know, titles that matter probably even more relevant to me than that really are, you know, community member, individual from the community, solving problems like my own. And as you know, I definitely probably wear that minimalist in New Yorker title as well. Um, <laughs> so true. You know yourself. Yeah, easy. You know, well, who would I have been if I hadn't? How about you? What does that look like to you, EJ? Introduction of yourself, names, and titles that matter to you. Yeah, titles. That sounds fancy, huh? So I am EJ Lim, and I am the founder and CEO of an organization called Talking Points. Other titles that matter most to me, I think a little about my identity. I was born in Korea. I hold a Korean passport, but grew up in England for most of my life and now based in San Francisco Bay Area in the U.S., so not titles, but a little more about myself. What is the name and mission of your organization? Let's start there. Yeah, my organization's name is Talking Points, and we're a non-for-profit organization. And our mission is to unlock the potential of families in being more engaged in their children's education through technology so that students can thrive, learn, and succeed. We focus on removing systemic language, access, and technology barriers so teachers and families can meaningfully engage and form strong relationships. What about yours? What is the name and mission of your organization? Uh, We thrive. We equip underestimated youth to own their future. Our youth are 
you know, really thinking first, you know, what are the problems in my community that I care to solve? Um, deriving solutions for those problems into a viable business plan. And then we provide them the seed fund to actually launch those business enterprises where our youth as young as 11, as old as 22, 23, are generating real revenues, real traction for their micro enterprises. As a result, really what we're after is this question of how might we close racial wealth gaps throughout the country? And also required to answer that question is how are we more aggressively fixing our economic development system so that it allows for equity and pathways of socioeconomic mobility? Right now, we live in a society that tells our youth, hey, you know, we're going to catch up to you when you're 18. You know, best of luck. You know, hope to see you there when you're 18 and we'll do something meaningful then. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, that's a great recipe to make sure that gaps persist. And so through our um, programs and the policies we've been advocating among school districts and workforce development boards, we're really after this question of what does it look like to target 11 to 17 year olds as direct participants in the economy so that we can close those gaps of mobility. Who are the people that you serve? Why do they come to your organization? How do you all help? You know, our primary users and stakeholders are youth, right? So though, you know, We Thrive comes across very programmatic, this all happens through an EdTech app, right? Um, We either go directly to the school where they're adopting the web and mobile app and using it from there, or directly to the student where they're downloading it and getting access to the curriculum, the programs, and even our coaches. Now, when they come to We Thrive, you know, the key thing that's happening is we're first doing a lot of orientation, actually. A lot of our youth come and they don't believe us, right? They don't even believe they're gonna create a real company because they're just so inundated with so much theoretical things and empty promises of um, projects like that education has given them that it takes a while to get them just to buy in. So orientation is one of the most important things. And then from there, we start escalating where, of course, eventually they actually launch that company and enterprise. And at the same time, we're also making sure that the actors of that system, our teachers who you know we look at as change agents, are also equipped to facilitate that journey. HJ, talk to me about what that looks like for you and the team as well at Talking Points. Who are the people that you serve? Why they come to Talking Points? How do you help? Yeah, we're primarily serving under-resourced, multilingual, and diverse students and their families and school communities. So we help you know schools make family engagement equitable for multicultural, under-resourced, and diverse students. So we do that at Talking Points by providing a free, easy-to-use platform for teachers and families that allow them to engage in instant two-way communication via text messages or through our free online and mobile applications. And we do automatic translation into 111 families' home languages. We think about one in four students are from immigrant families in the U.S., half of which are below the poverty line. And many schools and districts serve families who speak upwards of 30, 80, or even more than 100 different languages at home, which is crazy. I can't even list 100 languages off the top of my head. Head. So the ability to send out, you know, announcements and messages to engage in a language they can understand is critical. And we do that because 
you know, research shows that family engagement predicts a student's success twice as much as a family's socioeconomic status, which is crazy, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter if a family is rich or poor. If the family is engaged in their children's education, their students do better. But a lot of the families, you know, face so many barriers like language, access to technology, not having the time or the capacity, not yeah. being able to be used to the U.S. school system. A lot of the time, you know, we serve families who are new to the country, who are under-resourced, and they come to us to be able to communicate with their schools and also engage more effectively for their student learning. Mm. No, I love that, right? It, it gets so deeply to the core of not only, right, like what's required in education, but also uniquely tailored to this question of as we each show up as a family, as a learner, as a parent within education, what is it uniquely required to succeed? The 111 languages is new too, so <laughs> I love it. You know, I didn't realize you guys had scaled to that many languages already. Can you name a specific trend and innovation in the field of education or education technology that worries you and another that excites you? Curious, you know, how you see these trends, especially with COVID and, you know, virtual learning and so on. You know, there, there are so many things that hit me on the worry and hit me on the excitement. I'll go with this, but I'll also acknowledge if you ask me this question even later today or tomorrow. It might be a different item, right? Things that really make me most excited are the ways in which slowly but surely we really are getting more directly tailored to the individual learner. I'm a big believer that education is personal, right? Of course, education is personal. And also education was and its intent also intended for prosperous futures, right? I think that's one of the things also that begins to worry me, right? Is on one hand, we're getting closer to the learner, and I think that's super important for us to actually create lifelong learners and individuals that are prepared to succeed. On the flip side, I think also sometimes there feels like this dialogue of, um, you know, preparing students for prosperous and economic futures is this newer thing. And actually, no, that was intentionally one of the key aims of education. That's the thing that worries me is these things that without rooted in history, without rooted in context and where their aims and targets can go, I think we, we stand a lot to just duplicate all the same issues that we're trying to solve, honestly. I think we can um, reinvent the wheel unnecessarily without answering some key questions like, actually, should we just take a step back and question all of what education should be, for example, or the policies that have gotten us there? Um, but just diving too deeply, too easily into just making a change, I think, can really overlook um, the complexity and comprehension of the problem itself. So those are the things I'm thinking about. PJ, I know you're seeing like different things as well, just from your view. I'm curious, are any of that resonant with what you're um, excited about, worried about? What are specific things that you and your peripheral are excited and worried about right now? Yeah, gosh, so many thoughts here. I'll start with what excites me the most uh, very similar to what you're saying Daquan I mean multiple things I do think that education for each and every student should be for each and every student not all students and there is a difference in slight nuances of that you know you kind of assess where the students are at and see you know 
where do they need to learn more where are they strong or weak at and really personalizing that and i think there are various now support systems for teachers to be able to manage the classroom in a more exciting personalized way that's engaging for the students I think with that, there is also, you know, the adoption of technology that was seen an unprecedented, you know, strength during COVID-related virtual learning. A lot of naysayers to technology also had to cross the chasm in adopting technology in the classrooms, home environments. And with that, the infrastructures also increased dramatically and improved in terms of Wi-Fi access at home and at schools and so on so i'm really excited about the adoption at the pace at which technology was adopted so and i think the future is bright what does still worry me however is the what was you know clearly a widening opportunity and achievement gap that covid and virtual learning had about 20 percent of english language learners had absences the chronic absences during covid you know, black and brown students, their learning gaps increase from 12 months to up to two years. That means an eighth grader is actually performing at a level of a sixth grader. And that gap is continuing to widen with no signs of it narrowing. So I'm really worried about that. And students are not turning up even after schools opening. The parents are worried about COVID. So I worry about that. I also really worry about teacher retention teachers are really burnt out the school district partners that we're working with are going through a burnout kind of exhaustion period where so many teachers have covid or are burnt out by covid they're dropping out of the workforce they're not being paid well they're worried about the achievement gap so i do really worry about the future of the education workforce so widening achievement gaps but where are the people who are able to fill in those gaps and you know provide for these students you know it's funny that you mentioned that we've seen it across so many districts over those past two years now where many of our districts are struggling as you mentioned just to get attendance right and so when you think about the effects of just the wraparound interventions and programs that are intended to be there Right. And like we speak a ton with a lot of the, the statewide after school networks towards the beginning of the pandemic, for example, a lot of them are wondering really just like, how do we even show up in this moment? That causes all kinds of questions when we think about funding and resourcing for those continuing after the pandemic. And so I just think like back to your point around catastrophic. Right. It's like one happening just immediately for the young person. And then two, it's also happening with a bit of longevity even after, because then for all of those programs, resources, and interventions that, one, are not as easily able to reach the student at a time when schools honestly just have so much more important things to worry about. But then two, how do we make sure that like they can pick back up exactly where they left off as we do get back to some you know, resemblance of being able to connect meaningfully? I, I just can't agree more. This is On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. We'll be back with more stories, advice, and reflections after a short break.
On Course is presented with support from the City Foundation, which works to promote economic progress in communities around the world. Since 2018, Echoing Green and the City Foundation have worked together to build a more inclusive social entrepreneurship sector by supporting emerging innovators of color who are accelerating progress and transformation across the United States. Together, we are taking action to advance racial equity and help next generation leaders access their resources, networks, and support they need to increase social inclusion in their communities and help close the racial wealth gap. Welcome back. This is On Course. You're listening to founders and fellows HeJ Lim and Daquan Oliver. When you think about memorable events in your own journey, right, what memorable events really led to your decision to start Talking Points? Yeah, I can name a couple. First of all, it's really informed by my experience growing up. So I was born in Korea and then moved to England when I was eight and went to a public elementary school. About 60% of the students there were Korean immigrant students. And, you know, my mom was studying for a graduate degree at the time in, in the suburbs of London in England. And I saw my mom becoming this parent translator in the community, translating and communicating between the school, the teachers and other parents in the school. And, you know, tangible memory I have is every time she came to pick me up and my sister up from school, the the parking lot was really tiny and it would actually cause a traffic jam as, as she was driving out because these parents would stop her and be like, hey, what's going on? What's for homework? Can you ask this teacher that for my child? And these are other Korean parents. And I saw the impact that that had on me. And, you know, the compared to on Saturdays as good Korean kids, we'd had to, we had to go to Korean school. So I'm one of those kids who went to school five and a half days a week, not five. And the, the kind of interactions these parents had at Korean school with my Korean teachers was very different. And then I came to the US to come to graduate school and as part of a education school's class in innovation and education, I went to a parent focus group in one of the high schools in East Palo Alto. And if you know East Palo Alto, I didn't back then, as a student demographic, kind of in terms, I think it's 90% black and brown, 90% you know Hispanic right. and non-English speaking, I walk into the classroom, there's about 20 parents there. And guess what? 100% of them only speak Spanish. So I fumbled through the focus group in my broken Spanish. And I, I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, like how did I not think about having a translator? And, you know, those parents were there to input on how the school was designed. And they cared, right? They cared to give their time and I just thought, oh my gosh, these parents, like, love for their kids are universal, but the way that they can engage with the school community is so varied, and they face so many barriers in these under-resourced, you know, diverse and multicultural communities, which really reminded me of my school in London. So those right. were probably the two events that led to starting Talking Points, or even thinking about the idea behind Talking Points. What about no, you? So many memorable events probably for you and we thrive, but I'd love to hear them all. You know, one, it's of course sparked by, you know, childhood events. Uh, step one was, you know, activating 
some form of like entrepreneurial take never take no for an answer kind of energy and that really was spurred when my mom just said i couldn't have a toy right <laughs> like seven years old said i couldn't have a toy and i was like what do you mean i didn't really understand that what i did understand is that you can get money and money buys toys uh so i grabbed a stack of penny savers near these projects where we used to live and sold them to anyone in the community that would pay for them long story short purchased my toy and like i felt powerful and liberated and i think in a lot of ways that feeling and that understanding has led me to pursue the same thing for my community years later i couldn't really see that as a kid but i was like oh you know what the real story the heroes of that story are the community that said this kid is going to sell me these free newspapers i can just go get myself but fine i'll give him a dollar here five dollars here change here they enabled that transformative mindset for me you know Ultimately, when I got to college at Babson, right, you know, I was on a campus that was like not diverse in many ways, coming from an urban community, being only 4% of African-American individuals on campus, and then also being one of the few people who came from an under-resourced community on top of that, right? Single parent mother, all the things. Long story short, got involved in a community locally, and actually it was those kids who really spurred like the creation of We Thrive, I think. You know, those were my first ever mentees. We started out just as a program that I cared about passionately because I related to it during college. Eventually evolved into We Thrive because I just really saw its power to transform in the same way it had for me. I think those are the things that really led me to start We Thrive, right? And as you said, there, there's never one moment. There's like always a time, but those are definitely most memorable. Um, also memorable are the challenges, right? So let me flip that back to you and ask you, what were some of those early challenges and successes that you experienced in starting Talking Points? Gosh, so many. I would think about my early challenges. Let's see. I started Talking Points on my own and, you know, so did you, Daquan. And I think at the start, it was really lonely. Gosh, that was, it was just dark, you know, it Classic. was dark yep. and intense and lonely and you didn't have any thought partners and eventually building a team has really helped us get to where we're at. I have a fantastic partner in my COO and head of product, Claudine, who just is an incredible thought partner and a leader who has grown the organization with me for a long time. Um, our head of engineering, head of partnerships, both of which, you know, they've been with the organization for more than five years almost. So that's been like a really amazing team spirited journey. I would say some of the early successes, gosh, I think getting our first earned revenue check from our first ever district partner in Oakland Unified School District here in East Bay in the Bay Area was just an incredible feeling. We nearly framed it. We didn't frame it, but should have framed it. I, you know, and that was really grown from the bottom up. The teachers wanted talking points, the schools then wanted talking points, and then the district wanted talking points. So it felt extremely validating in terms of the impact and the mission and what we were doing to, you know, build partnerships between families and schools. And then, of course, you cannot 
forget your first you know, seven-figure philanthropic gift. I think it was from right. Google.org, which felt amazing when we won the Google Artificial Intelligence Impact Challenge a couple of years ago. So some of the early successes and challenges and how you go through them and how you deal with them in a way that's aligned with your organizational values, I feel like really shape the trajectory of you know where you go and how you handle stuff that's thrown at you every day thousand percent yeah what about you like what are some of the early challenges and successes i mean there are so many that it's it it's quite hard to summarize huh and pick a couple types of successes that really stand out to me are the are the kind of things that resemble that of like the moments that were super unexpected and um felt like a different form of reflection of how much i work what Types of things, for whatever reason, hit harder are things like um, like when we won WeWork's demo day, right, before Creator Awards had come. There was like two round pitches. I pitched at my WeWork in L.A., won that one, and then we went to the, the major L.A. all-wide. Um, I wasn't even competing for anything. I just like felt like, yo, if I'm going to show up and we're going to pitch WeThrive, people listening should be like, wow, that's a vision we should invest in. And like, that was it. That's all I cared about. And I remember... Uh, one of my close friends dropped me off at the location earlier that day and he was like oh do you think you're gonna win anything and I was like honestly like if I can just get like a Starbucks gift card or like yeah. free workspace for the year like yeah. I'll be hype that was yeah. my answer right yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so yeah. flash forward gave this pitch like I honestly did feel like I killed it standing ovation for the pitch we did um they give out awards later and they start doing awards starting at 25k <laughs> so Ooh. i'm looking around i'm like wait what did Ooh. i miss a memo <laughs> right and i did it they just didn't tell us and so long story short i ended up winning that um and i got 180k right for a saturday's worth of work that i just like showed up and i just if i'm gonna pitch i'm just gonna crush it that's gonna be that like those are the kind of successes that i feel like hit me harder because they were again just a deeper reflection of as you pointed out hej like the things that prepare you for the whole journey, right? Like one of the things I live my life by is like how you do anything is how you do everything. And I felt like that was a reflection to keep doing that because it's so easy to justify and say, I'm just going to do this and like barely show up. Um, But I think like not doing that really poised us for obvious that success there. At the time when 180 was everything, (laughs) right? (laughs) That was when I was only like a year or two into this. So anyways, um, that's, that's what stands out, the challenges and the successes. So I guess, you know, as a follow-up to that, Daquan, how have you been able to navigate fundraising and philanthropy? Yeah, when I think about navigating fundraising and philanthropy, right, for me, I truly approach it by doing the least possible so that I can focus on sustainable sourcing. So similar to you, Hej we've instead prioritized like earned revenue in places where we know okay if we got this one contract this year and we continue to succeed and deliver on those outcomes we'll get it again next year and so i think that's been like our most important focus right is building amazing partnerships with you know our funders right particularly our corporate funders our individuals we do have a few amazing foundations that really believe in like how we show up for economic development youth development and things around that Unfortunately, philanthropy is very easily to be 
removed the next year purely because they just changed their funding aim. If a funder has a bucket this year for youth development, economic development, and that's where we're getting our funding, and then next year they don't have that at all, and they're purely focused on climate development, right? That is not going to be something securely I can base a model of success on and definitely a recipe for me to fail my community. And so instead, what we've done is just find ways to sell directly to schools, school districts, and also ways, I think, that are open to partnering with corporations that even when it comes to a more funding bucket, it's still able to be secured on a sustainable way because it might be tied to something like volunteering or something like that. That is, again, like a year over year budget and a thing that could be replicated. What is it like for you on your end? I know you all have gotten like a ton of things along the way, but as you called out, right, one of your major successes were the earned revenue piece. What does that look like for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about philanthropy and fundraising. The biggest kind of driver of success is that you, you want to lead with the impact. Uh, you want to yep. lead with the impact of the organization and the vision of what the world will look like if you you know fulfill your mission. We saw a tremendous amount of support once COVID hit. We you know the, the number of families we served grew by tenfold in the last 18 months. And that meant that there were resources and funds that we had to invest in to be able to support that growth. And we've really kind of seen our philanthropic partners step up in giving us unrestricted um, milestone-based funding and really kind of trusting us talking points as the grantee in making spending decisions that that I'm really grateful for. And those cut across our corporate partners, foundations, and individuals who really believe in the vision of talking points. I would say, no, um, earned revenue definitely helps in the spirit of financial sustainability to your point, Daquan. I think, you know, the fact that we have earned revenue from school districts um, which will hope to grow in the next you know, three years to get us to a place that covers all our operating budget will be incredible because it means that any philanthropy and fund- fundraising that we raise will be spent on you know, R&D and growth and other investments that's more catalytic. So we are excited for the future, I think, and more to come there. So. No, I definitely hear on that. And it's funny, you know, listen to you another thing that you know, I'm just reminded of is just the necessity to for us to continue to unlock those new things. And I think particularly as two underrepresented entrepreneurs, right, like those things are sometimes more difficult than our peers may be as well. When I think about navigating fundraising and philanthropy is specifically as a black man, what does it require me in this room? Because my experience means that it's been different than other peers and I'm getting asked different questions so on and so forth. And so I feel like that's also something that I've grown to master along the way for better or for worse in a way that allows me to never code switch, but to make sure I'm just aware of those dynamics if I'm gonna be able again to show up for my community and get to success. Encores is produced by Echoing Green. Since 1987, the Echoing Green community has been on the front lines of solving the world's biggest problems. Echoing Green invests in emerging leaders with the best ideas for social innovation as early as possible and sets them on a path to lifelong impact. 
In 2020, we launched our Racial Equity Philanthropic Fund to ensure that the social innovation field takes bold action in the racial justice movement. To join us and support new generations of social impact leaders from all over the world, visit echoinggreen.org. And when your work is done, right, and your mission has been achieved, what does the world look like? Ooh. You answer that question first, Ikwan, before I <laughs> think about this. The, yeah, you know, it's a hard one, right? Because, not because we haven't come up with an answer, but because we've come up with so many answers, right? Exactly. So, so, in the most succinct way possible for me, you know, I think when we're done, our mission has been achieved, the world has some i've been saying this for a while actually for others it may feel like a hyped up word but for me it has a ton of visionary clarity which is it looks more akin to a utopia right what we're trying to resolve at the individual and also community level allows for a level of validation per citizen and per community that I think legitimately solves a lot of subsequent problems with also the ability for individuals to manifest that validation. And so I think the result of that, right, which manifested means, you know, perhaps, for example, you know, I was born with single parent household, under-resourced household, all the things. I was able to manifest a different validation than what society was telling me. Like I said, I think when we have systems and programs that more easily facilitate that for everyone, we live in something that feels more akin to a utopia, giving individuals the autonomy and validation required to, to fulfill that as well as a community. Let me flip that back to you. Work is done, mission achieved. What's the world look like? Ooh. So when my work is done with talking points at the very core and more, most immediate view would be ultimately we want to see every school, every family, every district, every educator, and every student see building you know strong, equitable family school relationships as core to their role and critical to ensuring student success and well-being. Um, down the line so and that you know goes for each and every student regardless of their backgrounds and they can feel supported by all the adults around them in their journey to grow and succeed and learn and so on Um, we also want a world where families are seen as assets you know unlocking what we say the untapped potential of families just the huge assets in the learning system and helping support deep, meaningful, and nurturing relationships for their students. And for that to be in, you know, every every school district and every school system in the U.S. and beyond. I would say, you know, more broadly, though, right, this is just a slice of the world that we're trying right. to change. I think more broadly, when my own personal work is done um, and the mission has been achieved, you know, it's a world where each and every student can maximize their own potential because ultimately that's what education is about. And um, that's regardless of their backgrounds, regardless of the country they're born in or the language they speak or how rich or poor their family is. So for every student to maximize their potential and, you know, have that growth uh, 
growth for the rest of their lives and somehow I believe that that will narrow the achievement and the opportunity gap that we desperately need in the society um it's gonna be a long journey and I don't think the work will ever be done but I am still optimistic about you know about the future so yeah no, so Daquan, I guess I mean this is this was such an amazing conversation. I can't believe it's been seven years since we first met uh, in wild. Long Island for the first time. Um, I'd love for you to share for those listening and so inspired by your work with Rethrive and Beyond. How can they learn more? Yeah, um, you know, two simplistic ways, right? Um, one, go ahead, uh, check out our website, team wethrive.org, right? So that's T-E-A-M-W-E-T-H-R-I-V-E.org. Also, if you're a young person or know a young person, you know that you feel could really take advantage of the resources we have, go ahead and navigate that young person to the app store uh, where they can type in We Thrive EDU and immediately get involved today. We have coaches on a standby um, and they could begin the entrepreneurial journey just from you know their couch or wherever else is comfortable. TJ, I'm going to flip the same question back to you, right? If I'm listening in, I want to, you know, learn more about talking points. Where should I go? Yeah. So you can go to our website. Um, the website is www.talkingpts.org. So it's T-A-L-K-I-N-G-P-T-S.org. Um, you can also follow us on social media. Uh, we're really active on Twitter. And similarly, you know, if you know a school leader, an educator, or a district administrator who can benefit from talking points, um, you know, feel free to email our organizational email, which is hello at talkingpts.org. Um, so, yeah, this has just been such an amazing conversation, Daquan. And I learned so much from you and I thought I knew everything about We Thrive and Daquan <laughs> as a human, but there's more and no, it's a the learning same. journey for both of us. So yeah. Yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you for our time. Yeah, it's thank you. A, it's been a welcome break. This episode was produced by Nicole Hill and Sumia Misra with narration from Jessica Tillman. Thank you to Vincent McNatt, Lindsay Booker, and Alex Silverman for their work on this season. To learn more about Echoing Green, visit echoinggreen.org. Don't miss any of our episodes. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating so other listeners can find us. This is Echoing Green.